This interview was recorded on November 20th, 2020. Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter Podcast, I'll be interviewing Inez Garcia. Based in London, Inez is a consultant, agile coach, a certified Scrum professional, and a Salesforce MVP and popular speaker who helps organizations become agile while using Salesforce. You can follow her on Twitter at Inez Kapanezka, and check out her website at getagile.co.uk, and watch her free video training at tiny.cc slash getagile. You can also join her newsletter at getagile.co.uk slash join. Inez is the author of the book, Becoming More Agile Whilst Delivering Salesforce. In the book, she uses real-life examples to show readers how to use agile practices and principles to deliver value and motivate teams, and how to cultivate adaptability and embrace mistakes in order to encourage sustainable working practices. In this interview, we're going to talk about Inez's background and career, professional interests, her book, and at the end, we'll talk a bit about her experience as an author. So thank you very much, Inez, for taking some time out of a London afternoon to be on the Lean Pub Front Matter podcast. Thank you for having me. I always like to ask uh, to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, so I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about uh, where you grew up and how you made your way through your career to working in Agile with uh, Salesforce. Well, once upon a time. So I'm from Barcelona. I was born in Barcelona. Um, and I studied communications, which used to be a double degree, five years of university, where you go through advertisement, marketing, matters of the states, uh, PR, you name it. And um, yeah, towards the end of my uni, I already started working as PR for Segway. And um, these two wheels, one platform, it's supposed to revolutionize the commuting within cities. Um, and and yeah, and, and, and I think it really hit me that I was having a very serious life, you know, convincing politicians to jump into this thing um, for, for being a 21-year-old person. So um, over summer, there wasn't, um, there, normally there isn't many politicians out there to, to talk to. So I spoke with um, my boss and I said, listen, I think I'm going to go to London for a month. And, um, and yeah, uh, 13, almost 14 years later, here I am. London is my home. And as you can imagine, uh, landed here for a month. I did all sorts of jobs to maintain my two different flats, um, flying the first plane in the morning, sometimes coming back the last one at night to present the end um, project of my degree. And, and yeah, I decided to stay here. I absolutely love London. I consider myself a Londoner. I have a mortgage here. This is my home. Um, although I love travel when we can. Um, but yeah, this is, um, this is me, how I end up in London. And over time, study communications, um, I end up in kind of business transformation and digital solutions have a lot to do as an enabler there. And so in one of the organizations I was working, the, the CEO said, well, I don't really mind too much around the CRM roadmap per se, but I'm telling something and we're going to get Salesforce. And we kind of look at each other. We're going to sell what without knowing what this thing was. Um, and it really blew my mind, the concept of citizen development and how myself, I could do a lot of business logic in a fairly fast and easy way so that I could enable the individuals to be unique at their work rather than doing boring things. And this thing really, really called my attention and I decided to focus my career around that. Um, and so the way that you deliver projects especially around digital solution, it needs to be very flexible because our environment changed massively. 
day to day. The technology that we use changes, the market changes, everything changes. This year is a great example. And so over time, you know, I got into this agile thing, which really called my attention in the way that was really flexible to change. And I got certified as Scrum Master. I got certified as an advanced Scrum Master. I finished the professional path. Um, and it's something I'm very passionate to try to demystify what is all this agile thing. Um, and this is, this is who I am. This is how I end up here, really. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you very much for sharing that. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit. I mean, I'm sure like actually most of our listeners know what Salesforce is. But if you could talk a little bit about what Salesforce is and a little, a little bit about its history and, and, and how it's come about. So Salesforce is, to me, uh, it's a great community, but in itself it's a product. It started as a CRM, um, a cloud solution of CRM, and you can imagine started in 1999, uh, where the dot-com bubble kind of passed, um, and is the number one CRM. It's been in the quadrant um, top quadrant for years and, and is now is an ecosystem of products with a fantastic ethics company behind. That's what I really, really like. Um, so started as a CRM. So you as an organization will have a cloud solution to have all the different relationships with your customers. Um, but you can extend this in any way from like support to digital marketing to how you go to market lean generation. Um, you can plug in financing and ERP solutions. So it's, um, it's like a world of endless possibilities. Um, but also, as I was mentioning, the community there is fantastic. Like for me, you know, to be able to uh, meet people from all around the world over the last, uh, you know, seven, eight years, it's been fantastic. It's, um, it's something I haven't really seen anywhere else that I work. Um, but the fact that you, you can just reach out to people and generally you have a, a, a very fantastic um, response, um, people really help each other is, um, is something that is very attractive to me. So, you know, we, we spend a lot of time at work every day. So it's important that we find joy whilst we do that. Yeah, that's great. It's, it's interesting that you, you mentioned that, you know, um, Salesforce started in 1999, which sort of like from one perspective seems like a long time ago and from another perspective seems like yesterday. But um, just to explain to anyone listening, CRM is customer relationship management. ERP is enterprise resource planning. Um, uh, you know, these, 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 some, a lot of these things uh, developed a unique character because of um, basically the World Wide Web, right? That um, and and people starting to do e-commerce and things like that, so that you could actually get there's there's sort of like cynical views about this that are sometimes based on good like real things, but like you as a business, you can actually get in. You could you could start getting actual information about people from something more than just surveys that they filled out. You could actually see how they interacted with things, um, and so that's why you can combine things like customer support with marketing, uh, which is one of the amazing sort of insights that Salesforce had and its foundation. Uh, and you, um, you talk, and so with respect to agile, um, which I think a lot of our, again, a lot of our listeners will know, will know what that is. And I'm not going to ask you to sort of give the, give a lecture on what, on what agile is. Um, but, uh, Salesforce switched, I think it was in 2006 from a waterfall to an agile focus. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you, what you know about that, that big switch, because it's a big deal when a company does something like that. 
Yeah, so in 2006, uh, they, they kind of moved um, the engineering team to a more agile uh, mindset. And so with that move, Salesforce delivered three major releases a year. And when I'm saying major, that means that every single customer across the portfolio is going to have an upgrade of more functionality without affecting any of their configurations. This is big. And so just doing that move, mm. they managed to wrap up the delivery of the release 60% faster. And so that's amazing. Yeah, it's, this is big numbers and you have many other examples of big numbers and, and to its core is how you adapt to change. I was mentioning earlier, right? Change is all around us and uh, humans, we tend to resist change because we are a bit wired when things change probably are dangerous. But uh, we need to move uh, away from the caveman time and realize that when we welcome change, which is also part of nature, many good things can happen. And it's having this mindset of understanding that change is not a bad thing, but it's if you get the most out of it, uh, you'll be quite well off. Speaking of change in nature, um, before we, we move on to your, uh, and, and segues, uh, before we move on to the discussion of your book, um, one of the things I've introduced into this podcast, you know, starting up quite a few months ago now is a discussion of the pandemic and how it's affected people where they live and, and personally and professionally. Um, I've spoken to a couple of people from London on the podcast about how it's affected them. Uh, and I mean, of course, you know, as we spoke a little bit before we started recording this interview, the neighborhood you live in, in a big city can actually be, you know, very different experience from any other neighborhood. Um, how have things been uh, for you uh, as a consultant, uh, as someone who does speaking engagements and things like that, uh, and as just a Londoner, how, how has the pandemic affected you? Well, so it's been interesting because interesting in a sense that at the beginning of this year, I decided to take a month off and I went to Japan for a conference. I was speaking there and I love Japan. It was my third time there. I decided to travel around Hokkaido, which is the very north and a couple of days skiing. Really amazing month. And that's when everything kicked off. Um, so, so I came back uh, to London. Um, so it was the middle end of February and it really it didn't, fully hit me what was happening because things were unfolding. Um, and generally I work remotely anyway uh, for, the, for the last uh, quite a few years. So in terms of work-wise, didn't have a massive um, impact at the beginning. And they made me realize that I was way, I have, I am very lucky I have been very lucky of globe trotting just before all of this. Who will have thought? Um, and then professionally, over time, it had some effects. And that's okay. We'll be naive that pandemic, to think that pandemic it wouldn't affect me in any way. So, you know, it's been a bit up and down, but that's okay. Um, because it gave me time to write my book. <laughs> So, you know, we need, to, we need to see the bright side of life um, in that sense. And in terms of the day-to-day -day work hours are more or less the same. Uh, in a sense, I was working remotely anyway, but I'm playing it quite cautious. 
being completely honest. I live right in the center of London and it is difficult to keep distance. It's difficult to leave the building. So um, I, it's important to keep um, not only the mind busy, but the body busy. So every morning I have a very tight schedule. So I will do yoga for 30 minutes. So soon I finish my working day, I will do an hour, 40 minutes or an hour of something. So Mondays and Fridays is this new thing of running on the spot, which is rather weird. But, um, you know, I'll do some cardio. Wednesday is workout dance because sport doesn't have to be boring. Sundays is boxing. So it's important to have some kind of routine and to keep your body healthy as well. Um, and yeah, and sometimes I do go for a walk, but it's complicated uh, where I live to, to have a space um, between other humans. So there you go. Oh. Do you mind if I ask what you mean by that? Uh, why it's difficult to keep space? Um, because, um, so the streets in London are very small in comparison to other places in the world. I live right in the center. So um, although I have Hyde Park um, fairly close um, to get there, um, I, it's very difficult to have two meters apart. Yeah. And, and not everybody is as uh, wary as uh, maybe I am. So, um, and is, I'm every, just is, every, is everybody wearing masks and stuff? Um, not outside, not right. outside. Right. Yeah. So again, I'm super lucky. The fact that you know I have everything and more that I need. I have a roof over my head, um, and I have internet, so we can be having this conversation. And I, you know, have food deliveries and everything. Um, I'm just playing it cautious because. Um, I, we don't know what are the lasting effects and I have zero intention to get sick. Uh, and yeah, my partner as well was um, not very well at the beginning of the year. So yeah, I have zero intentions to, to well, to get sick. There you go. Yeah, no, thank you much for sharing, for sharing that. Um, it's, it's interesting, you know, you, there you are near, very near the sort of massive and wonderful Hyde Park, but none, but you know, in order to get there, you have to go through these narrow winding London streets and it's, it's sort of a weird kind of. Yeah. And then the gates and yeah, yeah, it's, it's complicated, but that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, long time listeners of the show know that I at one point moved, moved to London myself and I lived there in various different neighborhoods and stuff like that. And I'm, I'm always sort of nostalgic when I hear about, about things from there. And, um, uh, yeah, it's, uh, and of course we're all sort of sympathetic to the second wave that's happening in various places. My last interview was with someone from Sweden, um, where they're experiencing a second wave, uh, just yesterday in where I live for the first time, there was a mask mandate, um, that was imposed for, um, you know, indoor public spaces, um, I live, I'm fortunate enough to live on an island. Um, so things have been relatively good, but people got lax. Um, and we had, you know, a lot of cases all of a sudden. So we're all pushing through in our own way, uh, trying to stay safe. Those of us, as you say, who are fortunate enough to have roofs over their heads and internet and sort of remote work, you know, it affects us maybe a little bit less than it does other, well, definitely a little bit less than it does other people. But, uh, you know, we're all, we're all doing our best to kind of keep our heads down and get through it. Um, uh, so now that we've gone through our digression, um, <laughs> going back to the, the main course of the interview. So um, you're a board game fan, which you, you write about in your, in your bios, um, and you've uh, got a game called the Agile Rep Retrospectives game that you've created. And I was, I've got two questions about that. One is, 
just a cheesy what's your favorite board game but the second one is more serious and can you talk about the agile retrospectives game and what it's what it is and what motivated you to create it difficult to choose one game out of all the games um it's a very difficult question. You should have prepared me for this. Oh, I'm sorry, Let's I didn't see. ask you in advance. Uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll just give you give you. My, so I'm a I'm a I'm like a kind of like medium board game. I'm I'm like a board game fan, but like as far as board game fans goes, I'm kind of medium. Um, and I really like um, well, I really like uh, a game called Talisman. I don't know if you know about that. That that's kind of an old game from uh, Games Workshop. And they they had another game called Dungeon Quest, which I really liked. Um, which you can, it's a game. It's one of the rare sort of board games that you can play yourself. Um, so you sort of trek through a dungeon, and the map changes every time because you pull out tiles that change the dungeon map and stuff like that. And of course, I like things like Catan and Ticket to Ride and and stuff like that. But if I had to pick a favorite, it would be one of the first sort of like proper board games I played, which would be Talisman when I was a kid. Mm, I need to check that one out then, Talisman. Um, I really like Dominion. Oh, yeah. Um, and I think it's because it changes every time that you play, so it's not the same. Um, I also really like um, com uh, collaborative games. So Pandemic is one of them. But The Maker also um, does um, Forbidden Island. So you're basically on an island and start sinking and you really feel like, you know, you're playing against something, but you know, it's oh, like the game against you and you're playing with other, um, Oh, so you're other, all, you're yeah. all, you're not competing with each other. You're trying to play together to, Oh, that's cool. Okay. Yeah. It's, I find that very interesting as well. So yeah. it's, you have like seven different, uh, different ways to die, <laughs> only one way to succeed. So it's quite hard, but yeah, this, um, kind of collaborative games are quite nice. Um, yeah. Okay, great. I, and, and, I can and, give you a list. <laughs> yeah, no, I'd, I'd, I'd love to have one. I'll put it on my sort of Christmas list for gifts to give to other people and to myself. Um, uh, and I'll, I'll put it in the show notes for this episode if you give it to me in time. Um, uh, but so you created this thing called the Agile Retrospectives Game, which people can find at uh, birdsnerdsandturds.com. Uh, and again, links to everything I talk about will be in the, in the transcription of this episode that you can find online at LeanPub. So yeah, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the game uh, and why games are important generally. So I really like games and I really mind about enjoying what we do. And as an agile coach, one of the things that you do is come together with a team at the end of every cycle and you talk about the how, right? Because when you deliver any product, any service or whatever you're doing in a team, generally, you always talk about the what, you know, it's about the delivering the specifics, but there is very little headspace to think about how we are approaching this. And so retrospective is the name for doing that. Come together with your team at the end of every cycle. If you don't have cycles, do it on a Friday. Come together with your team and talk, you know, what did we set ourselves to do? What actually happened? And what are we going to try next time? These meetings are can be a bit tricky and if they are not well looked after for the environment and the different things that place to it they can become very boring and it really defeats the object so i always bring different frames and games to help to revive why are we there and so 
one day, just um, after work, I was having a bit of a walk and this game appeared in my mind. Like, yes, this is a fantastic game. I need to try it. And so I procrastinated for a long time. The thing keeps popping at the back of my mind. And I said, I should do what I preach. So I apply agile mindset to it. And so I break it down. And every single week I was delivering part of the product. And then three months later, I was live. And so the game itself is... Uh, as part of the, the name tells us, is full of, it's a pack of cards and it's full of birds, nerds, and birds, and has also some statements. And the statements are about things that you want to achieve as a team. So in terms of like flexibility to choose your own tools, if you have the support that you need. They, I have tried to write the statements in a funnier way as possible, but you guys will be the judge of that. And the nets, the birds, and the thirds are the way that you vote. Actually, the game, you ha have four different play ways to play, but essentially, you will throw a statement in the middle. Everybody has a bird, a third, and a nerd. Um, and you, you throw quickly your vote against that statement. So if you have a lot of thirds on the table, then clearly something that you guys need to address as a team. Oh, that's fascinating. So you, you sort of have a statement, and then everybody has a bird of nerd and a turd and they can sort of in a fun way show what they feel about this position yeah there are four ways to play but yeah that's uh, like let's say number one right and okay. that is um i like what's happening in the room when you play because one gives the opportunity for everybody to have their voice heard mm -hmm. because everybody votes at the same time so that you remove the group thing, you remove the always the same person gives the opinion, you remove few items and you create a space so that everybody has an opinion that is visible. And, and uh, so the kind of team that would play this game and, and do a retrospective, is it, are these typically like software development teams or are they other kinds of teams as well? So the Agile Manifesto came from software background so is something that I, I would imagine most of uh, software development teams knows about, but it doesn't stop there because the concepts can be applied everywhere. I've been doing work with all sorts of teams with a roofing company. They also find things that they didn't expect. They have investigations. They go to the house, start taking out the roof, and they're like, mm, surprise. So how are you going to be dealing with this uncertainty and this ever-changing, you know, weather changes and whatever? I've been doing work with a PMO team, project management office team. Yes, they can also be more agile of how they are today. And yes, they also deserve a pause at the end of every cycle and say, what did we set ourselves to do? what actually happened and what we're going to try next time. It's all about trying and experimenting. Some things work better than others. Yeah, that's fascinating. I'm just thinking about all my, all my old roofer friends sort of being in an agile retrospective. Uh, and <laughs> it's sort of a funny image, but I'm sure they would have absolutely loved it. Um, uh, and just the idea of sort of like, uh, you know, normally when we're doing our work, we just kind of do our thing, but actually just any, any event or effort to kind of, apply your consciousness to what you're doing 
and 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 think about it from a from a higher level can be really useful. And so, I mean, we've had we've had um, Brian Merrick on the podcast before, who was one of the original Agile uh, manifestos signatories, I suppose you would say. Um, and so, most of most, like I said earlier, I think most people will know what it is. But the idea that it can be applied outside um, just the sort of like software development or you know, software engineering environments might be, might be a, a, a new idea to some people. And it's just really great to hear about how widely applicable it is. Um, so on that note, uh, moving on to the next part of the interview. So you've written this 200 plus page book, uh, Becoming More Agile Whilst Delivering Salesforce. Uh, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, what the inspiration was for that book and who the intended audience is. Of course, with pleasure. So similar to the game creation. This book has been at the back of my mind for quite some time. And my two passions, my two professional passions is Agile and Salesforce. I I really on a quest to demystify what Agile is about. Also, I care deeply about happiness. And I mentioned earlier, the Salesforce community is amazing. And I spend a lot of my time there and I do development of the products, of various products um, that I have. And so, hence the title of the book. I could have called the book, honestly, Becoming More Agile was delivering value. Mm-hmm. Because at the beginning of the book, I even giving you a little formula of how you could read it that way. I may mention certain things specific for Salesforce. Um, but for me, it was really important. It's my first book out there to bring together the two things professionally that I really, really care about and really helping to clarify what is all this hype about and how anybody in the ecosystem of Salesforce, and that's lots of people. I don't have the latest report on the ecosystem. To be able to pick this up and apply something today, apply something tomorrow. Doesn't matter if you're a VP, a front-end developer, a system administrator, a business analyst, a marketeer. You can pick up this thing and try something today. And you talk, it's, it's, I mean, uh, one, of the, one of the things I like about what you write about and talk about generally is, um, uh, well, happiness, the importance of happiness, uh, which is something that doesn't always come up in kind of corporate or business environments, but also embracing mistakes. Um, and I know I've been in a corporate environment where people talked a big game about embracing mistakes, but they didn't really mean it. Uh, how, do you, how do you convince people to sort of relate to embracing an understanding of mistakes as part of a sustainable kind of work process? So if we look at this year, for example, it's a great example that you can't draw the future on a straight line. Things are going to change the assumptions that you have at the beginning. And that's okay. It's how you respond to that, how successful you're gonna be at the end. Um, So mistakes need rephrasing. And on the book, I'm very specific about semantics. Every single chapter have a section about semantics. I think the words that we use are very important. And so instead of mistakes, uh, I think we should be using I don't know, something else. Um, Because it's about finding things. So in general, I think 
having a scientific approach to what you, we do is very important. So scientists come up with hypotheses, statements to the hypothesis, different ones, different paths that you can go through, and then specific experiments to see where you're going to go next. And so in the professional world, we should do exactly the same. You have a hypothesis about the product or an extension of a product or a new line or something to that extent. What are the different statements that can support the hypothesis and what are the different experiments that you can try out with minimum effort to learn? So what is the smallest, fastest thing you can put out in the market to prove you wrong? That reduces waste, reduces times, and reduces waste of, of time and money for any organization. The learning that you do with the experiments is what's going to guide you what you're doing next. So it's like flipping, flipping really what majority of the organizations do where you're like, okay, let's design in advance 18 month very detailed program at the point of time when you know the least that you're ever going to know throughout the 18 months. So this, I guess, um, this is actually something I, I think about a lot in my, uh, you know, life. And when, I guess this is like a really like big generalization question, but like, why do you think that the default for so many people is that we can predict and we can create a process and it's going to work and we're going to enforce it and we're going to treat a mistake like a calamitous failure rather than a learning experience? Like why, why are people's generally sort of, why do people's instincts generally seem to tell them the one thing rather than the other thing when the other thing makes way more sense, which is what you're doing is you're trying things in an in uncertain world. Um, and, you know, when things don't work, actually, you can learn just as much as you can when they, or even more than you can when, when, when you succeed. Uh, why is it that people are wired one way rather than the other? Well, I think there is a lot of things that plays there. Um, but things that comes to mind just now is that we like order and control because there is so much we can't. So putting things in lists, in checklists, in groups, it's a way to help our brain to process the information. This is something I've always, because I've always taken the position that like, of course the world's an uncertain place. Of course, everything we're doing are kind of, everything you do is a trial balloon. Uh, but there, there are people who seem to think that like, actually the world is just like a thing on, as they say, like on rails and it's going down a certain path. And if it doesn't, then it's it, their, their interpretation of that is like, well, we've done something wrong, not we've just encountered the way the world is. Um, and, and I just, yeah. And, and you said, you I mean, that's a really good point that a lot of people desire, like have a desire for the world to be an orderly place uh, where things are predictable. And if, you know, something doesn't happen the way you thought it would, that's not because the world is full of uncertainty. It's because you made a mistake. Yeah, exactly. And it's also confirmation bias we really need to be more aware of the bias that we have so that when we are on a conversation or when we are picking up a book and we are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We need to realize that a lot of the things is about confirmation bias. We have an idea and any piece of data that can support that our idea is right. Mm -hmm. We get really attached to ideas, humans. We something that we are really proud of. Um, mm -hmm. It's important that... Ideas are something that can be collaboratively enhanced mm -hmm. in teams. And that's another thing that we need to break through 
ideas is an idea. It can be, you know, no things are wrong or right, things that you can try, but things that you can enhance for sure. And the ownership of the idea it needs to be beyond one human. The pressure that we put ourselves sometimes with us, my idea and it's a right idea and it's because everything else went wrong. Um, you know, it's, it's trying to break some of these things of how the brain processes the information and be slightly more aware so that we understand why these things happen mm-hmm. and we can consciously be better that our reactions send us to. Yeah, no, that that's really fascinating. Sorry, sorry for sort of dropping the abstract question on you, but that's a really that's a really great answer, and I really appreciate appreciate that. Uh, and yeah, I really I'm really glad that you um, uh, explained that because um, it's a it's a really great book, and you know it's it's called Becoming More Agile Whilst Delivering Salesforce. But even if you're not working with Salesforce, this is definitely a book that you can learn a lot from if you're trying to. I mean, if you're a consultant or even if you're on any kind of team. I guess I hadn't thought of the example of roofers, but like you know, if you're on any kind of team or you're leading any kind of team. This is a book you can really learn a lot from. Um, uh, just moving on uh, to the last part of the interview. Um, so this is where we get into the weeds and uh, where people who are listening will know about this. But so um, how did you write the book? What, what, um, what did you use to, to write the book? Did you use Microsoft Word? Did you use something else? Um, I use Google Docs. You use what, sorry? Uh, Google, Google, oh, Google Docs. Docs. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, so, so one of the things is about, you know, uh, focusing the purpose rather than the tools. So I started throwing some ideas out there and that became the manuscript before I realized, um, really. And, and did you, uh, collaborate with anybody? Did you, did you give people kind of review cop, like ask for reviews or people to just do typo checks and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That gave me the ability to just share the dog um, at different stages with uh, different people that helped me to shape it out and uh, ask a lot of things that needed to be answered. Uh, and yeah, it's, um, it's fairly flexible. I think um, a lot of people are, um, are comfortable with using G Suite. And that's yeah. what I had at hand, you know, things unfold, architecture unfold, yeah. path and products unfold. So. Yeah. And did you, okay. are you updating the book or is it, is it kind of like, as they say, done, done? Well, nothing is done, done. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think over time, I mean, I'm looking forward to pause for a little bit. Um, because uh, closer to release, there is a lot of decisions you need to make, even on the design. I never realized I had to make so many different decisions about the layout design of inside of a book. And Mm -hmm. that's not my strong skills, but it Mm -hmm. it has been a journey, right? So look forward to pause for a little bit. Mm -hmm. But whilst the product is in the market, the product can only get better. So I do hope uh, that it will be more versions or takes um, to it. Yeah, thank you much, very much for sharing that. This is very much um, our, our philosophy. Um, and, so, and your main uh, sales channel is Amazon. What's your experience been like with them? I, I imagine you're using like KDP. Yes. So I also have it in Limpa with you guys. Um, but uh, yeah, so I did, to, I did have to invest quite a bit of time to learn the tools and this, that, and the other. But it hasn't been too bad. Um, I don't particularly agree with the um, royalties model. 
because I'm the author, so I obviously uh, think that should be different, and that's one of the things that drew me to uh, LeanPad. But yeah, so KDP allows you to do print on demand, although you know we should try not to print at all because of the environment. And um, if you do give the option of paperback, I know that it's only going to be the ones that really wants to have it, and there is no need to to utilize paper if there is no need. So, so that's one of the things I think that is good there. Um, and it happens on the spot, uh, so you don't have to worry about having a stock or anything like that. Um, it's very easy to upload a new version as well. It goes through a review that put my mind at peace as well because I wanted to see how it looks, you know, before it's out there. Um, so that's easy as well to, to have somebody just double checking before it actually goes live, live. Um, but Amazon, as an organization across, I'm seller as well because of the cards, is, is massive, right? So there is many things that I hope it can get better and over time my feedback and, and, and things will get better to make it um, easier to use uh, and to make the middleman, the seller, right? So we have the author and the seller of the product um, a bit happier. Um, customer perspective, I buy from Amazon all the time. It's very good, I'm very happy. Um, but yeah, I think it's this middle entity that needs to be looked at a little bit more. Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. I mean, I could talk for, you know, hours about the, um, and it would be another podcast about, you know, the print on demand and that, that sort of technological innovation where, um, and with respect to waste um, and, you know, uh, you know, throwing trees in the garbage um, in the past, you know, you sort of had to do, I mean, well, and people still do it, obviously, but you do huge anticipatory runs of prints um, and a lot of it ends up in the landfill uh, after having been transported back and forth on big, you know, noisy trucks and, and stuff like that. Whereas now, you know, if you're a self-published author, you can make your book available on something like Amazon and you can make a print, uh, you know, you have to do some formatting and some tricks and stuff like that. Uh, but, and uh, you can, you can then have a print on demand version and it's been a revolution, right? Because if uh, someone wants a, a book, it can just be printed that single book without having to print a, a bunch of them and then sort of do some desperate marketing around it to get rid of your inventory and stuff like that. It's just a totally different thing. And it's, it's really, really revolutionized publishing. So for example, you know, if there's a book from 20 years ago about a particular topic that then starts trending, like, like say specifically on Twitter one day, you know, all of a sudden people order a hundred thousand copies, well, not a hundred thousand, but you know, 50,000 copies of that book and only 50,000 copies of that book are printed. Um, and, you know, they didn't have to sit in inventory somewhere. They didn't have to, you know, anyway, it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, print books are okay for what they are. They are kind of wasteful in a way. Some people really love them and prefer them. Uh, but the print on demand technology and process is actually like the best, the best of all worlds. If you're in a world where people want print books, where it's like a one-off, um, and it's, yeah, and, and you know, Amazon's obviously fantastic, um, uh, in many different ways. I use it to, to buy things as well. Um, so, uh, yeah, I guess, uh, I don't really have any more questions, uh, but I wanted to thank you very much for sharing your time today. Uh, and you know, for, you know, putting your book on LeanPub, we really appreciate that. But, you know, one of the things I should also say too, is that, you know, LeanPub is here to help all authors and whether 90% of your sales are somewhere else 
or 90% of your sales are, are on lean pub. Uh, we just really like talking to people and finding out what their experiences is. Um, we support authors who sort of like, you know, use lean pub to create books and never sell a single thing on lean pub. Um, you know, that's, that's perfectly fine with us as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's also really great, you know, in the past, sort of very highly targeted books couldn't necessarily reach a wide audience, but services like Amazon and, you know, services like, you know, to a much, you know, lesser degree lean pump uh, can help people publish books and reach an audience, uh, a targeted audience in a way that they couldn't in the past. And so it's really, that's one of the reasons I was really excited to see your book appear on lean pub and wanted to invite you on the podcast. So thank you very much for taking the time today and for sharing all your thoughts with us. Thank you. It's been fun. Whenever you want, I'll be right back. <laughs> thanks very much. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.